Hello, and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs. Who Belongs is a podcast we recently launched at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley, where we discuss issues related to social inequity and the systems that drive them. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts of Who Belongs. In a previous episode of Who Belongs, we discussed the issue of hunger on a global scale due to the manipulation of international food prices by a handful of powerful agribusiness firms. In this episode, we're again going to touch on hunger, but at a more local level by looking at government assistance programs, including nutrition programs like SNAP, which is also known as food stamps for low-income people in the United States. And to discuss this topic, we have the privilege of speaking with Hilary Hoynes, who is a renowned economist here at UC Berkeley and the chair of the Haas Institute's Economic Disparities Research Cluster. Professor Hoynes specializes in the study of poverty, inequality, and the impacts of government assistance programs like SNAP and others, including the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is a cash assistance program for low-wage earners. Welcome to Who Belongs, Hilary Hoynes. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Let's start off by looking at the problems that some of these programs are trying to address, uh, which are poverty and hunger. And I just want to mention a figure I pulled from the website of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which says in, last year in 2017, uh, it calculated that four, 40 million people, including 6.5 million children, lived in households that were experiencing food insecurity. Uh, meaning at some point during that year, those households didn't have either the food or, or the money to be able to provide uh, nutritious food for the people who lived in those households. Uh, and so 40 million people is a striking figure, especially for a country that produces so much waste and that does produce enough food to theoretically feed everybody. So can you tell us a little bit about the role of SNAP uh, in addressing this program, uh, what exactly it does, and who the main beneficiaries are? Sure. So food insecurity, just to start with that, is something that, um, you know, we've only measured in the relatively recent period in the United States. And it's, it's actually a kind of a complex set of questions that households are asked to determine food insecurity. But, you know, as you point out, it's certainly a marker of having insufficient access to food. Um, and you know, it's a remarkably large number of Americans, actually a very similar number as the number of Americans that are poor in America. So it's there's a very, uh, you know, striking, steep relationship between um, poverty and hunger, as you, as you point out. Uh, they very much go hand in hand in the United States. So the USDA has a, has a several food and nutrition programs that are aimed at centrally reducing food insecurity. And by far, SNAP, or food stamps, is the biggest of those programs. And what is just tremendously powerful about SNAP, um, and is actually quite unique among the full range of social safety net programs in America, uh, is that it is the closest thing we have to a universal benefit for low-income families in America. So, for example, you have to be poor to receive food stamps or SNAP, um, and in particular, your income needs to be below 130% of the poverty line. Uh, in addition to that, you also need to have um, assets that are not above uh, a certain number. But after that, 
those are the main criteria for eligibility for food stamps. And what's unique about that compared to the rest of the social safety net, I mean, that statement isn't exactly correct. I'll, I'll fill that in, in just a second. But compared to all other elements of the social safety net, it's, it's very universal across different groups. So for example, the Earned Income Tax Credit, which you mentioned earlier, is a program that is very targeted at working folks with children. And so there's a lot of folks who don't get that. Working, you know, low-earning uh, folks without children, for example, are not eligible. So food stamps is, has a central role in reducing food insecurity. And more than that is what I like to consider the fundamental safety net in America because it's not just for the elderly or just for the disabled or just for families with children, which is a common sort of set of three groups that tend to receive more access to benefits than others. And that's a really critical, important feature. And then finally, probably the thing that has been studied the most with respect to food stamps is, does it reduce food insecurity? And the answer is a sort of resounding yes, regardless of whether we're looking at today or 10 years ago or different kinds of statistical approaches to try to answer that question, a very robust, consistent, and important finding is that indeed uh, those statistics that you cited about USDA would show even much greater food insecurity if food stamps was not available. Okay, but even with food stamps, we still have that striking 40 million figure and, and other figures. So there are some limitations to food sna for, to SNAP. And over the summer, you had some research published that uh, looked actually at uh, different purchasing power of um, SNAP vouchers, depending on where you lived, because in some area, because across most of the United States, with the exception of Hawaii and Alaska, uh, people received the same amount of food stamp voucher based on their income. So even if they're living in a region like California or the East Coast where food prices are high, uh, that the amount they receive is going to be the same for someone living in somewhere where food prices are much lower. So the people who living in those low price regions, their purchasing power is going to be higher than than places like here, like California. So you have a kind of a, uh, a recommendation to adjust the price, uh, adjust the amount that these vouchers provide for people who are uh, recipients of food stamps. So can you talk a little bit about uh, that? Right. I mean, it's interesting. The United States is a big country. Uh, there's incredible geographic variation in the cost of living. You know, as we know here where we live, housing is very expensive, food is much more expensive, and so on. Um, but interestingly, the food stamp program throughout its history has been a federal program that, you know, essentially doesn't vary at all across areas. And um, Surprisingly, this is something that has not gotten a huge amount of attention in terms of policy recommendations or, or, or even research that, you know, we sort of saw the variation in food prices as a, um, it's not good for people, but it's good for the research in order to try to um, take advantage of varying purchase power across area in order to evaluate what food stamps does. Because it's, to, to mention a statistical matter, it's rather hard to evaluate what a program does if it doesn't vary across space and doesn't vary across time and is very, fairly universal, as I already mentioned. So it's actually quite challenging to do 
sort of uh, frontier social science research on food stamps because of that. So we basically took advantage of the fact that food stamps was constant across areas, yet the price differs in order to evaluate the effect of SNAP on outcomes. But you're absolutely right that um, a, a very natural recommendation that comes out of our work uh, and something that we sort of promoted recently through the Hamilton Project is the idea that perhaps the the, the, the food stamp benefits should reflect uh, the local cost of living uh, more than it does today, which is to say not at all. And can you talk a little bit about the implication, because this has implications for people who have less purchasing power. You write in one of the essays, I think that summarizes the findings of the, the Hamilton paper of the research that you did, that a 10% increase in SNAP purchasing power increases the likelihood of a child uh, uh, to receive annual checkups by about 8%. And then on the issue of food security, um, the same thing, that a, that a rise in purchasing power by 10% can reduce food insecurity by up to about 22%. So that, that seems quite significant. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the results that we find for food insecurity are fairly consistent with the many studies that, uh, that ask how does food stamps affect food insecurity. We just sort of get to it through a somewhat different door than others have. I mean, it is striking. It's an important finding, but there's less new about our finding than what others have done. But what is more new in our paper is that we look beyond just food insecurity and look at other measures of sort of how the family is doing. And the, the things that, that are the most uh, striking and robust in our findings in that work is that greater SNAP purchasing power leads to, as you pointed out, more uh, um, uh, compliance with regular checkups like children are supposed to get um, uh, at the doctor. And the other feature that's very robust in our findings is higher rates of attendance at school. We looked at many other health outcomes and we find nothing statistically significant on other health outcomes. And we're, we're trying to make sense of those findings. It doesn't seem that there's a consistent set of findings that more SNAP purchasing power leads to better health. It may be that both going to the doctor for regular checkups and attending school more often is more consistent with not a change in health per se, but sort of less stress in the household because of having a bit more resources that sort of allows the families to um, uh, be able to um, uh, sort of be following the guidelines they should be for their children, getting to school as much as they can, getting to the doctor, and so on. And this is sometimes talked about in the research as bandwidth poverty. That is, the, there's more and more um, evidence that the very rea real situation of being poor in America leads to such taxing of the brain to think about those next bills that are due and, and the stresses of eviction and environmental um, hazards and fear and uh, danger that is around in the neighborhood, other sorts of things that are correlated with this in America, 
and that that can make it very hard to keep up with everything one needs to do. Um, so there's it's it's a little bit unclear exactly what mechanistically is behind those findings, but those are the the sort of consistent findings in that work. That actually sounds very similar to some of the findings that we put out a, a paper uh, a, a couple months ago um, during the rent control debate, debates that looked at people who were experiencing housing insecurity and a lot of the impacts they were they were affecting people's mental health, both mental and physical, because there were all kinds of implications that went along with not being able to afford rent. You know, in places where you where you work in, in the in your communities where you know if you're being pushed out of your communities, so. It affects you in all all sorts of ways, and it sounds like it's similar here with as far as the. Out. I think you're right. I, I, that's a good connection to make. Um, but one thing I understood from well, first of all, the argument I think is very compelling that people should have more purchasing power as far as SNAP. But one thing I understood from this proposal to adjust the the uh, amount, the purchasing price, the purchasing uh, power of a voucher is that while increasing the power for some people, that's going to be decreasing the purchasing power for other people. And the problem I see there is that even the people who live in these in relatively lower cost areas, I mean, they're still not doing good either. I mean, right. a lot of these people, um, it, the paper pointed out that it was they were only still covering like 85% of something, I forgot what it was called exactly, but it was the right. ability to purchase nutritious food or exactly. something. Exactly, a thrifty food plan. Thrifty food plan, right, right. exactly. So, I mean, these people, they're, they're you know, they're gonna, not going to be doing as well off and they're not already doing it. So the question I think a lot of listeners might have was like, well, fine, why don't you just increase, well, you adjust it, but then just increase the amount you spend overall. I think that even absent the discussion about whether we should allow the benefit to vary across place reflecting the cost of living, there are very principled arguments that people have been making for some time that the benefit level is out of sync with what it does cost to create nutritious food. And if you look at the changes in the prices of food over time in the United States and really around the world, you know, essentially good food has become much more expensive and bad food is not rising in cost nearly as as quickly. And so you can imagine the natural implication of that on a, on a kind of fixed food budget uh, and the challenge of trying to continue to, to purchase a nutritious food diet. So there, there, there's been a, a quite strong movement for some time arguing that SNAP is inadequate at its current level across the board. So I think that you know, politically, I think it would be very difficult to just implement a revenue-neutral change. I mean, I'm not a you know, I'm not a policymaker. I'm a I'm a I'm a scholar, but it seems it would be very un- difficult to implement a policy-neutral change to SNAP where there are winners and losers because it, it, it it's both uh, difficult to come to terms with, but also difficult to implement. So I think the natural thing to take place if one were to build in um, a variation in the generosity of SNAP based on local prices, is you would do it as part of a leveling up. You know, you would, you would take account of the fact that the formula is somewhat outdated with current costs of nutritious foods, raise the formula and add the, the price variation in one go. And so there would be no losers per se. Now that would of course cost more money, um, but maybe we can get to you know some of the longer term benefits of SNAP 
one of the things I was I was well the essay I mean it notes that there's a institutional barrier to this which is and I'll this is from the essay it says that the current legislation prohibits the value of the benefits of SNAP from falling below the level in October 1996. So what I was suggesting is why not just the government just put more money into SNAP right. and there and but something happened in 1996 which is preventing that. I think it was referring to the the Welfare Reform Act. What welfare reform did very importantly for SNAP was it and this is um, you know when I was taught just to to complete the loop of something we were talking about earlier when I said that SNAP is is very universally available there are a couple of really important groups that are left out of SNAP um, undocumented families are not eligible for SNAP and also if you're um, you know kind of um, able-bodied uh, not retirement age and don't have children in the household your your access to SNAP is time limited. So first of all, I want to sort of get that out of the way. But what happened in the welfare reform in 1996 was that um, certain groups of um, legal immigrants were um, were uh, restricted to have limited or no access to SNAP when they had had access before. And that and the ability to get SNAP varied with that new legislation depending on how many years ago that you entered the United States and um, uh, and what that date was relative to the welfare reform legislation. And those policy changes over about a five to 10 year period through subsequent changes in the farm bill were sort of undone and then redone again. Uh, and at, at this point, we're sort of back to where we were uh, pre-1996. Do you have uh, off the top of your head and kind of statistics or can you paint a general picture of what the situation was like pre-1996 as far as um, hunger, as far as people living with food insecurity versus what it is now? Well, we actually didn't measure food insecurity that long ago. I know a lot about um, uh, poverty rates and that and the other element that's really, really important in all of this is, and this is very important for SNAP, is that the vast, and it gets to an early question that you asked that I realize I never really answered, and that is who is on SNAP? Who, who receives SNAP in the United States? And there's a sort of popular perception that people who are receiving SNAP are, are, are not um, engaged in the labor market, uh, which is, is really quite untrue. Uh, and m most of the SNAP recipients are either individuals who we wouldn't expect to work, like children, uh, old folks, folks that are disabled, and the, the majority of the adults that don't fit in with one of those categories are, are actually working. So what the, the critical element that's a huge driver of food insecurity uh, and poverty in the United States has been stagnating wages. And so over the last um, many decades, back to the mid-1970s, if you're a low-wage worker in America, you earn less today than you did yesterday, the year before, 10 years before, 20 years before, other than small periods of wage growth. And we're in the middle of a bit of a period of wage growth now. What that means is that folks that are, you know, playing by the American compact that, you know, you, you know, you work and you engage in society through no fault of their own year after year have less earned income relative to the cost of living. And so the consequence of that is our social safety net now is more critical than ever 
to sort of top up earnings to sort of make families whole. And so what you see is that the vast majority of, say, families with children who are on SNAP are in families where there's, where there's earned income. And that's a really important element to sort of like get a baseline read on. And so to answer your question, to get back to the period of the early 1990s, the, the folks that were on food stamps were more comprised of people who were out of work compared to people that are in work. And part of that is the, the great transformation of the social safety net that occurred in the 90s through welfare reform, as we talked about earlier, which essentially very much restricted access to cash assistance and the simultaneous expansion of the earned income tax credit, which also acts to sort of acts to top up earned income. And those features very much sort of changed the landscape of the social safety net. So one very important difference between the early 1990s and today is a lot more food stamp recipients are, are combining work with the supplement of food stamps rather than, say, um, having some source of cash welfare income combined with food stamps. After, the, after Clinton signed the Welfare Reform Act, um, he was attacked by a lot of people on the left, progressives, uh, uh, people who were working to, to combat poverty, to reduce poverty. People accused him of, of taking food out of the mouths of children. They used terms like that. And I'm wondering if there's been any, any kind of serious um, proposals or serious efforts or talk about rolling back some of those, or at least changing some of the rules of the welfare reform by members of Congress who are a little bit more empathetic to people who, who can't work, who, who can't find jobs, um, to be able to get to get more people on food stamps? Or if that's something that's just not non, a non-starter? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting that you raise that, and I have a couple of thoughts to add to it, and one might maybe surprise you a little bit. Um, the, the, the state of cash welfare assistance today is so welfare reform happened in 1996. Fast forward, here we are in 2018. And um, back on the eve of welfare reform, 67 out of 100 children who lived in poor families got some cash assistance. Today, that number is below 30. So there's really been a collapse of cash assistance as part of our uh, social safety net. For some families, um, the earned income tax credit has done a decent job of replacing that income if you're able to get steady work that then is sort of you know, sub subsidized and topped up by this earned income tax credit. But the research definitely shows that deep poverty is a much more vulnerable state in America right now because really you have to have earnings to have your ticket to really getting the rest of the social safety net. And if for whatever reason, because of intermittent work, uh, difficulty of transportation, uh, adverse labor markets, all these many things, if you don't have that steady work, you don't get the rest of the social safety net, which I think there's many principled reasons that I could argue that it should be greater than it is, but the main point is it's a safety net very focused on work. So to get to, with that sort of background, to answer your question about is anybody talking about this, what I find really interesting 
about the current discussion is that, and maybe this can be a topic of a future podcast, is I've recently written a paper on um, just a, a think piece on the universal basic income. And as someone who has like spent my 25 years as, a, as an academic studying the social safety net, I'm very intrigued by current conversations about the value of a universal basic income. And what I find very interesting about that discussion is nobody is saying what you just said. That is, if we're concerned about deep poverty and, and concerns about um, the lack of jobs, the answer that people are raising is not, let's bring back cash welfare. They're instead bringing up these very more, much more expensive and more um, universal ideas around universal basic income. So I, I, we can, this is a topic for another day, but universal basic income is a very untargeted program. By universal, what that means is that you get it. If you're poor, you're not poor. It's a sort of a, a fixed benefit that everybody gets. And that becomes very expensive um, if you do the simple math of that. Um, so the discussions that seem to be coming up seem to be, not thinking about working within the current social safety net. So, you know, Kamala Harris just uh, suggested a, a very large expansion of the earned income tax credit, which is great if you have earnings, but again, is missing the piece about what happens if you don't have earnings, either temporarily or over the longer term. And in my opinion, that's where we really need to focus our policy expansions. The reason I bring that up is because I may be wrong, but I, from what I understand is that one of the things that the Welfare Reform Act did was give more control to states to be able to control a lot of the, yep. the, the cash yep. that they receive and how they distribute it and uh, designate who gets what and to what programs it goes to. And so a lot of states, and they can also adjust the criteria of who's eligible and yep. who's not. And so the Federally, they have they have kind of standards within the states can, can lower those standards. Some of them are really hostile towards poor, poor people, and Arkansas being one of them. And there's some statistics about how um, before in 1995, about 40 percent of poor families were receiving cash assistance, and in 2014, that's down to what, 11 or like something like seven that? or something. Yeah, in it's Arkansas. unbelievable. Right. Um, and then each state has has different figures, but across the board, it's down. Right. The money's going somewhere else, right. and and poor people are struggling more than ever. And then these articles, I mean, they're they're it's a kind of a human interest story where you talk to these people, and it really kind of dispels this whole notion of uh, of you know people just being welfare recipients being lazier. The real people are suffering, and it seems like we can't really address that unless we remove some of those restrictions and then bring it back to how it was to be able to at least give people kind of a a chance to get ahead. Yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, there's there's uh, I I've spent a lot of time um, analyzing, thinking about, uh, and most recently sort of revisiting welfare reform. And just to add what, to what you said, this, it, you're right that the critical element of welfare reform was this devolution of responsibility to states to be able to design the programs how they want to. At the same time, a really interesting and important element was that states received a set amount of money called a block grant, regardless of whether there were 50,000 folks 
uh, signing up for benefits or 10,000. It was a set block grant that's also fixed in nominal terms. So, you know, more than 20 years has passed since 1996 and just changes in the cost of living have eroded that block grant by 30%. So fact number one is states have a lot less to work with. Fact number two, is that the rules and regu regulations about this block grant and what valid uses of it were, were so lax that states have enormous ability to use that block grant for almost anything they want. So some examples. Uh, one state uses the majority of their welfare grant to fund a middle-class college scholarship program a very valid, like a re quite reasonable policy, but very far from welfare. Uh, another state uses their uh, state block grant to fund a pre-K, a statewide pre-K program. Again, very valuable uh, uh, policy for a state to engage in, but not very close to welfare. So the consequence is, is if you look across the states, even California, which has really been steadfast in trying to maintain as much of the old system as is possible, including putting in our own state resources to supplement the block grant, even California spends about 50% of its block grant on something that you and I would say is kind of welfare-like and the rest of it is spent on other things. And so it's very, it, I think it'd be very hard to turn back the clock on that short of just completely overturning that legislation, which I think is difficult, which is I think how some people get to thinking we need to do something different rather than change the existing program. Let's talk about some of the stuff that's going on in the news right now. There's proposed changes to the immigration rules by the current administration through the Department of Homeland Security uh, regarding who's eligible uh, to stay here to get green cards and, and permanent resident status. And one of the criteria they want to use is, is to broaden the definition of the so-called public charge um, to include immigrants who think that later on or that may have already or later on may receive government assistance programs like SNAP. And in a recent interview, uh, you compared those proposed changes to the 1996 Welfare Act, which you talked about already a little bit, that which, which tightened restrictions on immigrants. So can you elaborate about this proposed policy and implications of it? So the pros po policy is is still in public review right now, and the and it's also a bit of a changing. Um, the the actual specifics of it have changed over time, but the general approach of the policy is to expand dramatically the ability to connect eligibility, as you say, for advancing in terms of immigration status for legal immigrants to expand the charge to look at connection to the social safety net. So it's even more dramatic than you stated, and that is uh, many families in America consist of mixed, they're mixed status families. Uh, the parents or maybe the grandparents are, are not citizens, but say the children or grandchildren are. So I could, I could live in a household with my daughter and my mother and my daughter is a U.S. citizen and has full access to all elements of the social safety net just like anybody. 
But the grandmother, say, when uh, the grandmother is going through the immigration process, could be held accountable for the legal access to the social safety net of her grandchild. So the way that the rule is written right now is written in a way that says, and anyone in the household, through legal matters, participating in the social safety net. It's a, I mean, it, it is absolutely true that the United States has had a public charge element of its immigration system for a long time, but it tends to be have been written in the past in a quite extreme way, uh, and we could debate whether this is good policy in and of itself, but the way the policy has been written to date is essentially to try to rule out bringing folks into the immigration system who are sort of fully reliant on the, on the, on the, on the state. Uh, and this is a very, very, very far cry from that. And the connection that I was making in the, in the interview that you cited to the welfare reform legislation is a really important one. And that is what we learned in the 1996 welfare reform around that change in eligibility among legal immigrants that I told you about was that there was a massive amount of fear and what people termed a chilling effect of that policy change. So what that what I mean by that is that the change in the policy that was in 1996 that affected just food stamps ended up meaning that families disenrolled from many programs because they were scared and there was a lot of misinformation about what the rules were. And what people are finding on the ground today, you know, nonprofits and community uh, organizations are finding that households are disenrolling their children in programs, not just programs like SNAP, but Medicaid, uh, women uh, nutrition program called WIC, which is very important for children up to age five, and other programs. And that's, I think, really extremely concerning given everything we know about the benefits of what these programs do. And I don't fault, you know, I probably would do the same thing if I was in the position of these individuals. Uh, but that, that's, the, that's the issue that I was raising. Right. I actually have a study here from about two weeks ago uh, out of the Boston Medical Center's Children Health Watch, which finds exactly that. It, it, I'm quoting here. It says that the study found that the participation in SNAP by immigrant families who've been in the United States for fewer than five years and who are eligible right. dropped by nearly 10% in the first half of 2018. And it goes on to cite right. all kinds of um, rhetorical data about why people are, are dropping out of these programs, even though they're eligible. and even, even though they're eligible. Even though they're eligible and even though none of these changes have occurred yet, they're just talking about exactly. them. Exactly. So it's creating a lot of fear. Absolutely. And and it's kind of having the effect maybe that the people who are making these proposals in the administration were hoping for. Yeah, I can't speak to that, but that certainly sounds right to me. And I, the last thing I wanted to, to ask about is it's on that point. Now, the basis, I guess, for people who are against, who consider themselves maybe fiscally conservative, they're against government handouts, what they call government handouts in the form of, um, you know, support programs for lower income people, even though a lot of these people who are in Congress support things like, you know, corporate welfare, bailouts for banks, trillions of dollars that have gone to corporations. But when it comes to actually helping human beings and not corporations, they're against that. But if we put that aside and just focus on some of these programs, you say that even then, 
it's not physically responsive. It's not economically. It doesn't make any sense. It's not smart to cut these programs from these people. And why is that? So one of the things that we're learning a lot about, and this is this is research that maybe has been going on for the last five, maybe 10 years at the most, is that we now are having a growing body of evidence that shows that not only does providing more SNAP reduce food insecurity today, that we've known for some time, but what we're learning is that providing more um, assistance, and there's work that looks at this through the lens of the food stamp program, also Medicaid, the earned income tax credit, and some work on cash welfare, all consistently shows that if children have more protection through these programs, particularly when they're young, it seems maybe particularly up until sort of school going age, that that has a dramatic effect on their life trajectory. So for example, we find that having more access to food stamps when children are young leads to a greater likelihood of graduating college, uh, graduating high school, going to college, uh, higher earnings in young adulthood, um, lower rates of incarceration among among non-white men, um, better neighborhoods that folks live in in adulthood. So, you know, if you were like, I was telling my mom about this study recently, and she looked at me like, well, that's not surprising. Like, if you if you have more resources, that's going to send you on a better life trajectory. And I said, you're absolutely right, but we haven't really quantified this. So I think the way in which it's it's both smart policy and good for families is to recognize that, you know, First of all, many of these families that are getting food stamps and the earned income tax credit and all the rest, again, are sort of victims of this wage stagnation, which is not really their choice that that's going on. And having these benefits to supplement their income, we're now learning, also changes the life trajectory of the children, which itself yields great public benefits in the long run. That's the argument. And that was our conversation with Hilary Hoynes, who is a professor of public policy and economics here at UC Berkeley. She's also the chair of the Haas Institute's Economic Disparities Research Cluster. We're going to put links to some of Professor Hoynes' recent work on SNAP, as well as other resources related to our conversation today, on our website at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. Thank you.